Welcome to the Word of Life Center podcast. It's our desire that today's message would equip and empower you to see the Word of God bring life to your life. I did not set out to write a book about Superman and Kryptonite. And as everybody in here knows, they're fictional, but something I did discover is spiritual kryptonite is very, very real. Now, I was actually doing one of the most in-depth studies on the Church of Corinth that I've done in my entire life, and I started getting questions. And how many of you know that there are questions that we don't ask because we don't want the answers? Let's be honest, right? So I'm turning 60 in two months. So I personally thought the church was, I know I don't look a day over 80, but anyway, um, I... They're, they're just, I, I expected the church to be so much further when I was 60 years old, when I was in my 20s. So I started asking some of these questions that I avoided, right? And one of the questions that I started asking is, are we in America like the Corinthian church or are we like the early church? You say, wait, 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 they're the same. Well, let me just say this. Acts 1 through 12 is the years 30 to 34 AD. But if you look at Corinthian church, Paul's first letter is 56 AD. So we're talking about a 25-year span. And a lot can happen in 25 years. But if you look at the early church, they were almost invincible, I mean, do you realize the Bible cannot exaggerate? And the Bible tells us it names three distinct cities, Lydda, Sharon, and Joppa, that every single person in the city got saved. Now, I'm kind of weird. I mean, I may be speaking to 10,000 people at a conference, but my mind goes to where are the other million and a half people in this city? You understand what I'm saying? And I'm like, why aren't we seeing entire cities getting saved? If you look at the Corinthian church, They were a big church, but history shows they didn't impact the city of Corinth like the early church was impacting entire cities. And there are reasons. I started seeing some of the whys behind the struggles they were having. I mean, they were arguing with one another. They were divided. They actually had favorite preachers. Can you believe that? That's ridiculous. Okay. They were um, suing each other. They were actually committing sexual immorality like a lot of unbelievers weren't doing. I mean, the list goes on and on. They'd go to the, the, the church dinners. The rich people would go first, eat all the best foods, and leave the scraps for the poor people, right? And so Paul finally writes this church. Now, remember, he loves this church, and he says this. He says, for this reason, many. Now, look at the word many. Many of you are weak. So what's going on here? Just as kryptonite neutralized Superman's otherworldly powers, this church is actually being neutralized. But let me say this. I am not a preacher of doom. I am a preacher of hope. And I know that there is a prophet in the Bible that literally saw the last day's church. That's you and me. Because I believe we're in the season, right? And you know what this prophet said? He's the prophet Daniel. He said, the people who know their God shall be strong. Everybody shout strong. Strong. What's the opposite of weak? Okay, you got it, right? So this this army's not going to be under the influence of kryptonite. The people who know their God are going to be strong. Now look at this. Not just carry out exploits, but great exploits. So I don't care if you're in the business world, if you're in healthcare, if you're in education, government. God's will for you is to carry out not just exploits, but great exploits in your world of influence, correct? But what is the key of this army? It's the people who know. Everybody say know their God. Now, this word know is absolutely amazing. It is the Hebrew word yada, which simply means this, to know someone deeply and intimately. It is used all throughout the Old Testament in regard to God knowing our hearts, right? How many of you know God knows your heart a little better than you know your heart, right? It's used in Genesis 4 verse 1 where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So this is interesting. 
the most intimate the two human beings can be on the planet, the Holy Spirit uses the word yada to identify it. Now, that's not a coincidence. Because how many of you know God uses marriage imagery all throughout the Bible to illustrate his relationship with us? Come on, talk to me, right? I mean, you'll see statements all throughout the Old Testament like this. Your creator is your husband, right? If you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes the statement. Therefore, a man's going to leave his father and mother. He's going to be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. But then he says, this is actually an illustration. So God was the first one to give illustrated sermons. If you think it's strange that I just showed you a video, God is the first one to do it. A marriage is an illustration of how the church and Jesus are one. Isn't that amazing? We have that image. We have that illustrated sermon before us every single day. Now, with that illustration in mind, watch this short video. That castle. Really? Isn't that phenomenal? So they taught you how to fold the napkins? Yes. Oh, wow. I actually, believe it or not, I know how to fold the uh, Sydney Opera House. I don't believe you. No, no, I really do. I, I, I can totally show you. Hang Stop. On one second. I am very excited. Oh, good evening. Oh, good evening. Have you um, dined with us before? Yes, actually, this is our favorite restaurant. Welcome back. No, babe, I'm pretty sure we've never been here before. Oh, that's weird. Really? Yeah, no, no, we haven't. Oh, hold that button just one second. I'm really, really sorry. Oh, no problem. So what would you like to order this evening? Yes, sir. So you know what? I think I would like to have that salmon. That that sounds absolutely wonderful. That's one of my favorites. Oh, great. Yeah, And for you, ma'am? Oh, um, I will have the filet mignon and the New York strip and the eight-ounce sirloin, all medium rare, please. Yes, fantastic. That is a great choice. <laughs> Thank you. I will get those right out to you. Babe, that's, that's kind of a lot of food, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not just ordering for one, you know. Wait, are you? Are you telling me that we're... Are we expecting? Yeah, he'll be here soon. It's a boy? Oh my! Yeah. Of oh my gosh, course. babe. Okay, this has got to be. There he is the... now. Wait, Hi. What? Oh, bonjour. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> I ordered for you. Oh, thank you. You know me so well. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry. Do you do, do you two know each other? Do yeah, guys... he is my boyfriend from high school. Your your boyfriend from. From high school. Babe, can I ask you what your old boyfriend's doing? <laughs> and did I come at a bad time? No! Yeah. I really don't see the problem here, Justin. Yeah, I really don't see the problem here. Okay, who are you? Honey, stop. You're embarrassing me. I just wanted us to have one nice night at our favorite restaurant. Okay, first of all, I've never been to this restaurant. And, and second, what is going on? Hey, babe, sorry I'm late. Did I miss anything? Okay, seriously? Hey, you, right, you, you take your hand off her and you, what is going on? Just sit down. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Angela, is this, is this some kind of joke? Are you... Are you actually seeing these guys? Justin, I've known these guys longer than I've known you. Wait, what? Are you seriously jealous right now? Jealous? Angela, in case you forgot, we're married. Okay, and we spend the majority of our time together. I'm, I love you more than any of my other boyfriends. That's why you'll always be my favorite. Your, your favorite? 
Is is there anyone else I need to know about? Babe, is there a problem over here? Okay, really? The waiter? No, Dennis, we're fine. All right, seriously, no. Good, food will be right now. Oh, okay. Angela, Angela, all right. These guys need to go. We need to talk. We're done. I cannot believe this. You are being so selfish. Selfish? Why do you always have to make everything about you? You ruined our favorite restaurant. Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, I've, I've still never been to this restaurant. Okay, so it's a little out there, but I think you get the point, right? So now let me ask you a question, Lake Charles included. And I really want you to think about this before you answer, all right? How many of you would want to be married to somebody like that? Let me see a show of hands. Nobody. Oh, I know somebody's got to have their hand. Come on, she's beautiful. She's got a great personality. Why didn't any of you raise your hand? Okay, I'm going to articulate why you didn't raise your hand. Because even though he is her favorite, even though she loves him more than any of the other ones, even though they spend 90% of her, their time together, her heart's still divided. Right? Now, you'd never marry someone like this. What makes you think Jesus is coming back for a bride like this? If you believe Jesus is coming back for a bride like this, you're as deceived as she is. He's coming back for a bride that has given herself to him the way he gave himself to her. See, when a girl puts on a white dress and walks down an aisle of a church, do you know she's actually making a pretty strong statement? Do you know what she's saying? She's saying goodbye to 3.5 billion guys. Because this is the man I'm giving my entire heart and life to. Well, Paul finally has to write this church that he birthed, he loved so much. And you know what he says? He says, many, remember this is that Corinthian church, many, remember for this reason, many of you are weak. Many of you have not given up your old sins, your old boyfriends. You haven't broken up with them. You have not repented. Everybody say repented. Of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasures. Now, the key here is that this Corinthian church had not repented or broken up with their old boyfriends. Now, we got a problem immediately. And you know what the problem is? Today in the American church, if you say the word repent, you get people that shut down. Okay, and there's actually a good reason for that. And you know why? Because in the past, mean-spirited, legalistic preachers have beat us up. They don't even like people. Have beat us up so unmercifully with this word, repent. But can I tell you something? As a Catholic boy that got saved and studied my Bible now for 40 years, I've discovered that repentance is one of the most empowering, life-giving, and beautiful words in the New Testament other than the name of Jesus. So can we do something here this morning? Can we just talk about the elephant in the room? Can we just discuss this for a few minutes? First of all, God calls repentance a gift. How many of you know God doesn't give his kids bad gifts? He does not give us constrictive, rebinding up gifts. He gives us liberating good gifts, right? The Greek word for repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It is found over 50 times in the New Testament. Its raw, pure definition is this, a change of mind. That's the definition of repentance. So don't think hunger strike, don't think, you know, sackcloth asses, that's Old Testament, it's a different word, different situation. This, that is what New Testament repentance is. But if I leave it there, you're not going to get the impact of the word. Because how many of you know I can change my mind but not be fully persuaded? Come on, talk to me, I need, I need response right now, right? Right? 
So maybe we got to go a little deeper. The encyclopedia, uh, a Baker encyclopedia of New Testament words gives it this definition that repentance, this Greek word metanoia is a change in the whole personality. Now I like that. So repentance is a change of mind, but it goes deeper. It goes to the will. It goes to the emotions. It penetrates the heart. So when I repent, I am fully persuaded from the core of my being about something. You see what I'm saying? This is why Jesus says this from the heart. Everybody say from the heart. heart. See, if repentance is just a change of mind, he would have said from the mind, from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, uh, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft and lying. Now, what I've learned in all my years of walking with God is that the wisdom of God is simple. A fifth grader can understand. A, a five-year-old can understand it. So I went to the Holy Spirit and I said, will you please show me the difference between somebody who's repented and somebody who's not repented? And he made it so simple. The unrepented person says this in the core of their being. I choose what is good, best, and right for my life. Okay? The repentant person says this. I choose What God says is good, best, and right for my life. No matter what society says, no matter what is acceptable in our culture, I choose what God says. Why? Because he is my maker, and he knows what breaks me, and he knows what fixes me. I mean, any of you dads ever give your kids a gift for Christmas? And of course you know more than the manufacturer, right? So who needs instructions? So you spend two hours, put the thing together, there's ten pieces on the floor, and then it doesn't work. Why? Because you thought you knew more than the maker. You see what I'm saying? Are you still with me, right? Now, if you look at this video, I had our team make it like this on purpose. Did you notice in the video that she was just as shocked by his behavior as he was by hers? I mean, come on. She's the one that accused him of being selfish, of being jealous, of making everything about him. Why doesn't he enjoy my past life, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Now, how could this ever happen in real life? Why do we make it like this? The only way you could ever have a real life scenario like this is if the people in Angela's life, and when I'm talking about the people, I'm talking about her family, her friends, and her teachers, never once told her when she was growing up that in order to enter a marriage covenant, You have to break up with your old boyfriends. If they never tell her that, she's going to be upset at him for not enjoying her past and and, and the people involved in her life. Well, when I look at the way we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ today in our American church, first of all, we stand up and we sell Jesus like a used car salesperson. Now, if you are a saved used car salesman, I'm not talking about you, okay? I'm talking about the unsaved used car salesman. You know, they, 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 just, they just, oh, man, they make it look so good, don't they? Because they really want your money, right? So we preach the goodness of God. Now, listen to me. We have to preach the goodness of God because the goodness of God leads men and women to repentance. But we do it in such a way that it's salesy. And then we get the end of our 35-minute sales pitch. And we say, do you want a relationship with your creator? Do you want to have a, be in the family of God? Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, come into my heart. Receive you as my savior. Forgive me of all my sins. Amen. Now you're a Christian. We never said one word about repentance. So you know what we just did? We created a bunch of Angelas. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, it wasn't this way. Look at, look at the first words out of his mouth. First words out of his mouth in his ministry. This is public words. First words. Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins, 
and turn to God. What is he saying? The only way you can turn to God is to repent of your sins. Break up with your old boyfriends. Are you seeing this? Notice he began. Everybody say began. Did he continue? Oh, yeah. Let me just show you a couple. Matthew 11, then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he'd done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. Look at Luke 13. You will perish too, Jesus says, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Now, how about his disciples? He's training these guys for a year, year and a half to go out and represent him. On the very first time that he releases them to go out on their own, what do they preach? Mark 6. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. In other words, you can't turn to God unless you repent of your sins. Are you seeing this? You still with me? All right, how about the rich guy in hell? How many of you know people in hell don't need to put on a facade? You you understand what I'm talking about? He looks at Father Abraham and says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to my five brothers from the dead, then they, oh my goodness, will repent of their sins and turn to God. He knows more than a lot of pastors do in America. And he's in hell. How about the day of Pentecost? Did it all change? Peter's looking at... Thousands of people. And I mean, they bought the ticket to the conference. They want to get saved. And look what he says. Each of you must notice. He doesn't say it's strongly recommended. These are the people who want to get saved. You must repent of your sins and turn to God. How about the apostle Paul? He got the revelation of grace. Did it change under his ministry? Paul said, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all of Judea and also to the Gentiles that all must, again, look at the word must, repent of their sins and turn to God. Let's go straight to God's mouth. God the Father overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands. He doesn't highly recommend. Everyone everywhere that covers Lake Charles to repent of their sins and turn to God and turn to him. Are you, what's the biblical truth? I mean, I mean, there are others, yes, but I'm not going to take the time. What's the biblical truth you're seeing here? <laughs> There is no genuine faith in Jesus Christ without repentance. It's not a genuine faith that's counterfeit. You ever try to spend counterfeit money? You wouldn't be here right now. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. It tells us the whole foundation the church is built on. What's the number one foundation? Hebrews 6, repentance from dead works. What's the number two foundation that's built on the first foundation? Faith in God. You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? You really don't have faith in God. Unless you've repented, broken up with your old boyfriends. Sure is quietness, Methodist Church, right now. You still with me? All right, so what is the heart posture? Everybody say heart posture of the person who's truly repented. Okay? I love this. Here it is. I have been the one that has judged what is best for me. From this moment forward, that's all changing. I'm going to embrace whatever God says is best for me, even if I don't get it. Now, let me give you an example. Day of Pentecost, you got a guy and girl living together, right? And they repent. But they're still living together. But then a couple weeks later, Pastor Peter stands up and says, hey, Hebrews 12, 3, the marriage bed is undefiled, and God will judge those who have sex before marriage and those who are adulterers. And the guy and girl sitting there going, whoa. Whoa! Well, he knows what makes us and breaks us. We already made up our minds. We were repenting. We don't even need to discuss this. Even though 90% of our society is living together, either we're getting married today or I'm moving out. 
Do, do you see? They made the decision to repent even though they don't know for a few weeks or months. That's why you're going to have people that are in the process of getting cleaned up, but they're not going to go, oh, oh man, this, this is the way our culture is. That's just what we do. No, you don't. You're lying. You're lying to yourself. Look what Paul says to this church, finally. Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. This is what is amazing to me. It is one thing to fool the person sitting next to you. It is a totally different animal to fool yourself. And this is what Jesus said about the last days. What's it going to be like? The very first words out of his mouth is be very careful. You are not deceived. There's only one problem with deception, and that's this. It's deceiving. The person who's deceived believes with all their heart they're right. I'm right with God. I'm born again. I prayed the sinner's prayer. When in reality, they're not. That's scary. Now, look what Paul says. Those who indulge in sexual sin. Stop right there. Just stop. Nobody's throwing stones here. I'm number one on the list. Okay? When I'm 12 years old, a friend of mine introduces me to pornography. Okay, so you know what happens if a young man, 12 years old, gets introduced to pornography. Within weeks, I'm addicted, right? By the time I'm in high school, I'm so eaten up with lust. I'm literally in my high school classes. I hate saying this, but I got to. I'm undressing girls in my high school classes and having the wildest sexual fantasies in my mind. Do you understand what I'm talking about, right? So then I go to Purdue University, and I played varsity tennis at Purdue. I start on their team, and then I joined a fraternity. You talk about adding fuel to the fire. Oh, my gosh. But my sophomore year, one of the best athletes in the state of Indiana came up to my room and shared with me the gospel. And I gave my life to Jesus. And that night, I was born again. And can I tell you, cussing left my life because I couldn't construct a sentence without cussing. Okay? Alcoholism left my life. But you know what didn't leave was that spirit of lust, pornography, the addiction to pornography. So now, let's fast forward. I'm 23 years old. I'm marrying who I consider... A woman who is a supermodel, okay? She's the go- most gorgeous girl on the planet, still is, after 37 years of marriage, all right? And I'm like, okay, everything's going to be fine. No, it, it gets even worse. And it's affecting our relationship in the bedroom and outside the bedroom. So now I'm working for our church in Dallas, and my job is I pick up guest speakers, and we have one of the best-known churches in the country, in the, probably in the world. So we had every major speaker coming, and the guy who had the most powerful deliverance ministry in all the world came to our church on a regular basis, and his name was Dr. Lester Summerall. And so he's sitting in our church vehicle, and I remember I had gotten to know him pretty good, and, 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 and we we're alone, and I opened up and I shared with him. I said, Doc, I'm bound. Boy, did he let me have it. <laughs> and, and I could tell, even though he's letting me have it, he was doing it because he really cared about me. Does that make sense? So I listened to everything he said in that vehicle. And when he was done, I said, Doc, I want this out of my life forever. Now, this is the fall of 1984. Are you tracking with me? And he said, come close, John. And, and man, I'll never forget this. He laid his hands on my head, and he prayed a really strong prayer. Do you know what happened? Nothing. Let me be a little more specific. Absolutely Nothing. Well, you better find a stronger minister. (laughs) No, you're not finding anybody stronger than Doc. So that was the fall. That was like September of 1984. Well, nine months later, I go on a four-day fast. On the end of the four-day fast, um, it was May 6th, 1985. I was completely and totally set free from that spirit of lust and pornography. And I'm still free today. Thank God. So, 
after walking in freedom for a couple years, this nagging question just won't leave me. So I finally just said, God, I don't get it. I mean, I really humbled myself with Dr. Summerall. I opened up with him. Why didn't I get free in September 1984? Why wasn't it until nine months later? And God started showing me my prayer life. Now, this, this is interesting. I got to go back a little further. I got to go back to 1981. 1981, I read this book by Ian Bounds called The Power of Prayer, right? It impacts me phenomenally. And so after reading that book, I started setting my alarm every single morning for 4.45 a.m. And I was up and outside in a remote place praying by 5 a.m. And I would pray till 6.30 a.m. every single morning. And I'd be to work by 8. Now, when you pray 90 minutes every single morning, how many of you know you run out of things to say? So what do you do? You go back to your default prayer. What's your default prayer? That's the thing you want more than anything else. Okay? What was my default prayer? God used me to win multitudes to Jesus. God used me to get people free. Use me to heal sick people. Lord, give me souls or I'll die. I remember praying it that passionately, right? Screaming it. So I don't know if this was August, September, or October of 1984, but I'm out praying. I remember where I was, okay? I remember the tree right next to me. And the Holy Spirit says, son, your prayers are off target. I went, what? Praying people get saved? So he said this to me. He said, you can win multitudes of Jesus. You can get people free. You can heal people in my name and end up in hell forever. Now, I think it's the devil. Okay? But then he said something to me I'd never heard somebody say before. I'd never read it. I'd never heard it preached. In our church, all we talked about was miracles and receiving from God in faith. So I never heard it in my church. But he whispered this to me, and he said it in almost this tone of voice. He said, son, he was like he was appealing. He said, Judas left everything he had to come follow me. Judas healed the sick in my name. Judas got people free in my name. Judas preached repentance in my name. Judas is in hell forever. Okay. I'm trembling. And I remember I said, okay, what should be my default prayer? And he said, to know me intimately. And that day I thought, that was Moses' number one prayer. He finished well. That was King David's number one prayer. He finished well. That was Paul's number one prayer. He finished well. So now my prayers start changing. God, I want to know you the best a man can know you. I want to please you the best a man can please you. I want to love you as deeply as a man can love you. I want to know your heart. I want to love what you love. I want to hate what you hate. And I started praying like this. That was, became my default prayer. That was the thing I desired more. You say, John, what does this have to do with you getting free from pornography? It has everything to do. Because look what Paul says to this same church. He said, for godly sorrow, everybody say godly sorrow, produces repentance leading to salvation. The word salvation, it doesn't mean just die and go to heaven. It's soteri, which means healing, preservation, soundness of mind or deliverance. Not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I want you to notice there are two sorrows. Everybody say two sorrows. Listen very carefully to me. They're both genuine sorrows. It's not that one sorrow is real and one sorrow is fake. They are both real, genuine sorrows. Both sorrows confess they've sinned. Look at Judas. He said to the priest, I've sinned. If you look at King Saul, he said to the prophet, I've sinned. But then the next words out of the prophet's mouth were, you just lost your kingdom. If you look at Balaam, he said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, yet God had him judged. Both sorrows have remorse. Judas says to the priest, I've sinned, please take the money back. 
And when they don't take it, he throws it back. He was so remorseful over what he had done. Both sorrows can have tears. In fact, I've seen godly sorrow with no tears, worldly sorrow with tons of tears. What's the difference? You can see the difference in the life of two kings. King Saul disobeys God. And to be very honest with you, that's the root of all sin. Adam didn't jump in bed with a prostitute in the garden. He just disobeyed what God told him not to do. King Saul disobeys God. The prophet comes and does what prophets do. He backs him into the corner. Saul goes, I've sinned. But you know what the next words out of Saul's mouth were? Samuel, now honor me in front of my elders and in front of my people. In other words, you've just embarrassed me in front of my leaders and my people. Restore my dignity. The focus of his sorrow is himself. King David commits adultery. To cover up his adultery, he murders the woman's husband. Unthinkable. The prophet comes to him, backs him into the corner. David goes, I've sinned against the Lord, falls on his face. Couldn't care less what his leaders and people thought. Stays on his face seven days and said, against you, against you only, if I'd done this wickedness. Focus of his sorrow is him. Worldly sorrow focuses on you. What are the consequences? Am I going to lose my marriage? Am I going to lose my position in ministry? Am I going to be judged? Am I going to burn in hell forever? Godly sorrow focuses on him. I've hurt the heart of the one I love so deeply. God showed me, son, when you opened up with Dr. Summerall in the fall of 1984, you were scared that sin was going to keep you from the international call you knew that was on your life to preach the gospel focus of your sorrow was you. He said, but after nine months of crying out to know me intimately, when you went on that fast, your heart was breaking because you were hurting my heart. He said, that was the godly sorrow that produced the salvation or produced the repentance that led to your deliverance. That's where you clap. (laughs) Okay. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin. Read this list, please. Okay. The Bible is not adjusted to culture. Okay. Or are male prostitutes or practice. Everybody say practice. Homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people. None of these, don't fool yourself, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the key word is practice. You see the word practice up there? There is a multitude of people that are going to come to Jesus on Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 7. They are going to call Jesus their Lord. They are going to expect him to say, enter in. They have proclaimed his message in his name. Their church has done works. And Jesus is going to look at them and say... I don't know who you are. Do you know the word know that he uses is the word genisco, which is the same word as yada? I don't intimately know who you are. Who are you? But we ate and drank in your presence. Where are you from? But, but, but we went to church every Sunday. I don't know you. He's going to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I think I got the scripture. Put it up. You who practice lawless. The word lawless means you're not submitted to the authority of the word of God. You're conformed to the culture. Now, the word practice is key. Jesus is not talking about the person that's in bondage of sin and crying out to be free. Let me t- can I tell you something honestly? I believe if I would have been tragically killed in 1983, I would have entered into heaven. Why? Because every time I fell into that hideous sin... I cried out to God in repentance. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you seven times in one day, and seven times comes back and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. Why? Because that's the way God forgives us. 
Here's the person he's talking about. I know, I know, the Bible says this stuff about fornication. But you know what, man? We live together. 90% of the people live together. And somebody else goes, you know, my wife's been grumpy for about five years. But this young girl, man, she speaks such strength into my life. She makes me feel strong like a man again. She's so good in bed. I'm so excited about church this Sunday. Thank God for his grace. That's the person who calls Jesus Lord, who practices lawlessness. I know it's not right to steal and cheat on your taxes, but you know what? The government gets too much. That's the person that practices lawlessness. I know the Bible says that we're supposed to give. Are you getting this? Watch this video. sent here for you. Your doors are about to close again. I need to get you out of here. You want to get out of here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, come with me. Let's go. Okay. All right, so, Kevin, what we're going to do is we're just going to head down here. I hope you're going to be able to climb because we're just going to... Kevin, what are you doing? There's anything I've learned in prison. It's that orange is definitely my color. Oh, no, 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 no. You want to leave everything behind. If you bring that with you, the dogs will be able to find you. You'll be right back here. Right, right, right. Okay, right. All right, so. All right, team. I have the package. We're heading to the extraction zone right now. Kevin, what I need you to do is... This bed is perfect for me, okay? You think that we're gonna be able to get that through there? It contours to my every shape, okay? I can't sleep without it. Kevin, let's go. All right, let's go back here. Okay, okay, yeah. All right, so. Wait, hot dog Wednesday. What? Today's Tuesday, tomorrow's Wednesday. They they serve hot dogs on Wednesday. Are you serious? Are you. Yeah, I I can't miss that. Kevin, you can buy whatever food you want whenever we're out there. We just. We just need to go! What about Chester? Okay, what is that? You, Kevin, okay, just hold on. Oh, oh my gosh, what is it? Uh, Kevin. What is it now? See, look, I've been saving these up for a long time, okay? Hey, Daryl, you still want to trade cigarettes? Yeah, that's cool. Look, I gotta trade these with Daryl, okay? Me and Kyle got this, like, cigarette business, and I can't just leave him now. Kevin, I don't think you understand this. Your door's gonna close again. I need to get your... Kevin, come out. We need to go right now. Please. Just leave everything? Kevin, you need to come with me right now. We need to go. But what what could be better than all this? Kevin, you don't understand. They'll find the way I got it. I won't be able to come back for you. I just need more time, okay? Okay. Like, this is my home. Kevin, get out of this cell. I know. I can't can't just leave you. This is your only chance. I I just need to think about this. This this is my home? Oh, Kevin. Kevin, I... Kevin, I... Suspect is at large, at large, I repeat. Suspect is at large, at large, I repeat. Suspect is at large, at large, I repeat. I'm not getting out there. Wait, wait! 
Wait, please. Don't leave me here, please. I can let it go. I can let it go, please. Wait, please. I promise I can let it go, please. Please don't leave me here. Please don't leave me here. Kevin refused to let go of is what kept him in that prison until it was too late. That's the multitude of people that will look at Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. I saw a vision in the late 1980s that shaped my life. I saw in this spiritual vision a multitude of people so large you couldn't see the end of it. It was an ocean of people. And every one of them had come to the gates of heaven. Behind me was Jesus, the gates, and the city. I never saw them, but I knew they were there. It's hard to describe. God just let me look at these people's faces. Every one of them called Jesus Christ their Lord. Every one of them. Every one of them expected to say, enter in. And they heard the words, I don't know who you are. I heard these words behind me. I don't know who you are. Depart. God let me see was the excruciating agony, shock on every one of their faces. And God put a passion in my heart in that very day, not for the lost on the street only, but even more so the lost in the church. Paul finally writes to this church that he loves so much, and he says this, Stop sinning. For to your shame I say that some of you, you don't know God at all. He's writing to the church. Thanks for listening to the Word of Life Center podcast. You can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter or at our website, wordoflifecenter.org.